The scripture reading this morning is uh, 1 Samuel and the whole first chapter. 1 Samuel 1 and all the whole uh, chapter. There was a certain man of Ramathium Nophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penaniah, and Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penaniah, his wife, and to her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah wrote, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, <clears throat> O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. 
And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Then Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice to pay his vow, and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell therefore, and dwell forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, and she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord. And she worshiped the Lord there. Thank you for that reading. This morning our text is Mark 5, verses 21 to 43, and we look at stories of faith. This particular story of the woman Hannah is a similar story to these that we will read, in that she had a need that she could not fulfill. She had a desire. She had something that overtook her. Something that caused her to seek the one, the only one who could heal. The only one who could do away with her trouble. And we also see, as we'll see in, in the Mark stories, that God answers her prayer. And God gives her the desires of her heart. These three understand something of faith. They understand something of assigning to God His ability, His Godness. If we're honest, I think we often... Attempt to understand faith. And we ask the question, what is faith? Is faith a, an internal creation of belief? It is, is it something that we gin up inside ourselves? Is it a superstitious understanding of the future? Is faith merely hoping for an outcome? Is faith believing what you want to believe but cannot prove? 
what is the true nature of faith? And we must ask the question because throughout history, the church has regarded faith as one of the central themes of Christianity. The Apostle Paul taught that salvation came by grace through faith. The Reformers attempted to return Christianity to believe in that that very truth, that salvation is not a reward for us keeping rules or observing days, but is a gracious gift from a loving God. And He gives it to those who have faith. Even today in our modern world, we struggle to find a true understanding of grace, and we see Christianity explaining faith in multiple different ways. As we interact with these stories, I think we'll see some elements of true faith, and hopefully a few that we can apply to our lives. Again, our text is Mark 5, uh, beginning at verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but grew only worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garment... I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means 
little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is God's word. In understanding these stories, there's multiple different elements in these stories that just jump out at me, even through the first reading. If you consider who these two people are, and what their experiences are, and the fact that they were approaching Jesus says a lot about them. You take this man, Jairus. It says that he was one of the rulers of the synagogue. As we know from the Gospels, the rulers of the synagogue were not necessarily Jesus' friends. They were not necessarily those who, they did follow him around, but they didn't follow him in the sense of a true disciple. And you wonder really, what, what this man had witnessed. Was he in the house when the roof was torn off? Was he one of the rulers asking the doubting questions? I'm sure he was in the quiet room in the back room where these discussions were being held and, and he heard these things about this Jesus and he heard the fear and he heard the misunderstanding that the synagogue had. But then you also wonder, because we, we, we tend to divorce the leaders of the synagogue from their humanity because we see them as just kind of monsters. But, but what would it have been like to see that man stand up? Would, did all remain doubting when they saw that? What about when the man had mud placed on his eyes and he washed and he could see? And, and what about the lepers? And what about all of those things? How many of those did this Jarius see? And we don't know for sure, but we can assume he probably at least heard the stories. And you really wonder, what, why did he change? Why did he go from one who, by all of our other understandings, was against Christ to one who was kneeling at his feet? And we consider this woman. Twelve years Twelve years of continual pain. Twelve years of social outcast. Twelve years of, as it says, um, she had suffered much under many physicians. Um, Twelve years of no answers. You see, in their law, one who had... An issue of blood like this was an outcast, was impure, could not be met in public, could not be touched, had to remain outside of the camp. So for 12 years, an outcast. But we see both of them acting in faith. I think the main point of what we'd like to discuss this morning is that the, the picture we see of faith in the woman and in Jairus portrays a humble faith brought about by the recognition of their own deep need 
and seeing Jesus as their only hope. And within that, we'd like to interact with three ideas. First is their posture of faith. Second is their their question or their request. And then finally is the reward of faith. One of the things that we notice in both of these people is that there is a real tangible humility. Again, Jairus, a synagogue leader with much position and prestige, throws himself on the ground at Jesus' feet. The woman, shamed in her uncleanliness, merely seeks to touch. But when brought face to face with Jesus who has healed her, she as well throws herself on her knees at his feet. The posture of humility is one of prostrate openness and abandonment of self. I think we have this idea that humility is something we bring about in ourselves. Humility is a character trait that we cultivate. Humility is something to be developed within us. And to a degree, I I think that's true. But I think this story shows us that true humility is a result of understanding ourselves and understanding our true position. You see, the reality is is that each of us are in a humble position as as it relates to God. We may stick our chest up and throw our shoulders back and and look at God and say, look at me, God. But that's not our natural position. That's not our true position. Our true position is one of an enemy of God. Our true position is one who has rebelled against Him. One who has turned away. One whose nature is against God. And so humility comes about not because we're working on something inside of ourselves, but it comes about when we realize who we truly are. You see, both of these recognized their complete inability to bring about the wholeness that they desire. They were fully aware of the sickness, and that sickness brought about humility. And it humbled them in front of the only one capable of healing. You see, does one go to a doctor hoping to tell him what to do? Does one go to an accountant with the prophet figure in mind? No, we go. We go because we assume that they know more than we do, that they understand more than we do. We ask someone of greater knowledge and experience to guide us, and in many ways, we, act, we ask them to act for us. And this should be our response to our sin sickness. Do we fully realize our desperate situation? I think in truly understanding that is the beginnings of humility. Again, as the person with the injury goes to the doctor to find the full extent, we go to the Lord of the universe, the one who truly knows our hearts, and we find the full extent of our brokenness. 
in the state of knowing our sinfulness, Jesus becomes our only hope. As well, if we consider the opposite of humility as pride and arrogance, we have two examples of that in our story. We have the disciples blindly retorting to Jesus, it's a big crowd here, come on, somebody touched you. And we have the hired mourners laughing at Jesus. In the case of the disciples, I wonder if I wonder if, if sometimes we're, we're so close around Jesus and around his people that we sometimes get surprised and it, it doesn't affect us as it should. When we see him truly heal, it should affect us deeply. But you see, neither of these, neither the disciples nor the mourners, were in the anguish of the soul that Jairus and the woman were in. In all likelihood, these these mourners were something that were hired, and it often included uh, some flutes and some people that would cry loudly. Even the poor were told to at least have one mourner and two flutes. Um, but Jarius, being a wealthy man, there was probably a, a larger commotion than that. And so they didn't understand the anguish of soul. How often do we as well glibly acknowledge the presence and sacrifice of the Savior, but allow it to remain on the surface? How often do we allow our pride to stop us from acknowledging the true darkness of our hearts? And so in this posture, we see them humble before God, before Christ. We also see them abandoning themselves the desperate nature of these two sees them seeking out Jesus because of what they have heard about him. But it would not have been socially acceptable for them to do so. Jesus, or excuse me, Jarius, a synagogue leader, would not have normally knelt at another rabbi's feet. And as we said earlier, we don't know what conversations he would have had, but it probably wouldn't have gone well at, at the next synagogue meeting if people knew that he knelt at Jesus' feet. The woman, ostracized for years, would have never dreamt of approaching a rabbi and touching him. The scorn, the social scorn that could have come her way if she truly acknowledged to everyone that this was who she was. She was unclean. And in touching Jesus, she had to acknowledge that she was unclean. She had to abandon her own reputation. And so, the posture of faith is that of humility, is that of abandonment of self. Secondly, then, the request of faith. As I peruse Facebook and online Christianity, I often see people calling for prayer in certain situations, and, and in here I observe a curious phenomenon. It appears that people are taking not the posture of humility, but the posture of demand. I bind this here or that, and I cast 
this devil here, and in the name of Christ, I send this sickness somewhere else. And in essence, these are demands, not requests. And sometimes I wonder if one does not truly believe God can act. And so, in their unbelief, they at least make a show of believing by making strong statements. And even outside of that, it's, it's rare that we find a truly talented and equipped individual that's also arrogant and boisterous. There's a settled understanding that comes when one is sure. One doesn't need to be loud about his surety. One doesn't need to be overconfident. One can rest that God will act and God will act in His sovereignty. And so we make requests. And we see these two doing that. Lord, my daughter is dying. Please, can you touch her? Philippians 4 and verses 5 and 6 says, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. It's from a posture of humility. A request that comes from faith. The request of faith implores the Savior to hear our need and to act on our behalf. There is no demanding God to do thus or so. There is simply a faithful request. And then finally, we have the reward of faith. As we consider the goodness of God in these two stories, we see His generous nature pour forth. Faith is rewarded. The humble request of faith is granted. And in the case of both, life and abundance of life is given. But as we review church history, we also must understand that there are many faithful witnesses' requests that went unanswered. Many faithful Christians have cried out to God for healing in, in situations of need. But in His wisdom, God has withheld healing. I'm sure the prayer of the persecuted church throughout the ages has been that God would rescue them from those that harm, and it should be our prayer as well. But God in His sovereign wisdom chooses to allow them to experience an earthly death for His glory. The genuineness of their faith is proven in their life, as Hebrews would say. The true word of faith is to know the truth of the world, the truth of the Creator, and ultimately, the truth of salvation. The woman and Jairus saw the truth of the Savior. What was hearsay and what was reputation became real in their existence. It became real in their experience. 1 Peter 1 gives us an image of the reward of faith. I'll read verses 3 to 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this is the reward. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The reward of faith for the Christian is the salvation of our souls. Stories like this ask us a number of questions that we should consider. Are we willing to be are we willing to be honest about the truthfulness of our heart's condition? Is humility something we've attempted to put on? Or is it something that comes from an understanding of ourselves and an understanding of who God truly is? And what is our faith? Is our faith in our understanding? Is our faith in our ability to perceive? Or is our faith in, the, in our knowledge that Jesus is the only one with the solutions? for our problems. In conclusion, Ravi Zacharias says this about faith. Faith in the biblical sense is substantive, based on the knowledge that the one in whom that faith is placed has proven that he is worthy of that trust. In its essence, faith is a confidence in the person of Jesus Christ and in his power, so that even when his power does not serve my end, my confidence in him remains because of who he is. Faith is not in our ability to understand, but it's in God's ability to be. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that we are often weak in our faith. We often don't like to shine the light of, of your holiness and your goodness into the, to the deep recesses of our hearts. We don't like the feeling of being needy and undone. But Father, in these stories we see people who have no hope outside of you. And Father, this morning we recognize that we are in the same place. Without you, we have no hope. Without your sacrifice on our behalf, we have no eternal hope. And Father, we are grateful that in your generous mercy that you have created a way of healing our brokenness. 
that by sending Christ, that by his dying on our behalf, that we can stand before you sinless. As the young girl and as the woman were healed and made whole, we too can be made whole. Father, I pray that you would do your work among us. Help us to recognize our true humility in front of you. And Father, may that humility bring about a posture of faith that we may live as your children. We pray this through Christ our Savior. Amen.